Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollock. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what you can do when you're mad at the world about whatever is currently happening. I am here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? Uh, I never have a good answer. You ask that every time. I know. You never have a good answer. <laughs> it's an unfair question because it's like... What are you supposed to say? So uh, <laughs> I am. Uh, so Lila now is going to introduce our guest this week. That's right. This week we have Irene Shin, who is a delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates and the executive director of the Virginia Civic Engagement Table, and most importantly, a member of my pandemic book club. <laughs> um, Irene, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Lila. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you all today. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. Did you grow up in an activist household? Like, what's your background when it comes to political action? Totally. That's a really great question because I feel like um, my upbringing doesn't necessarily obviously lend itself to a career in activism or working in the legislature. Um, you know, like most immigrant families, um, mine didn't have a ton of extra time for advocacy. Um, I think about the kind of privilege a family or a person has to have to be able to have the extra bandwidth, the capacity, the resources to get involved, um, which is why I'm so passionate about like equitable access to the government and to services. But um, certainly that's that's sort of my upbringing. And one of the reasons I got into policy, public policy, it goes way back to when I was like in high school. Um, in spite of my parents being Buddhist, they decided to send me to a private Christian school. Um, that is still a very big questionable decision on their part, I think. Um, but they did. And so when I went to this private Christian school, every spring break in high school, we would take a school bus because I grew up in L.A., from L.A. to Cornavaca, Mexico. And we would work in these rural communities with the churches because um, churches are such a big part of the community. They are places where, you know, the community members would come to sometimes just like have a hot meal or like their only meal of the day. If they don't have running water or a bathroom or toilet in their houses, they come to the church to like take showers and like use the restroom. Um, and sometimes it's just like a place where like, like the corner stoop, right? You like go hang out there, catch up with your neighbors on like whatever the latest gossip is. And so we would work with these churches to do like vacation Bible school programs, working with those kids, installing hot water heaters and like building showers and shower stalls. And that was like the most fulfilling thing for me. I was like, this is the best thing ever. I want to spend my whole life being a volunteer. Um, and it's like my junior year of high school when we're you know leaving Cornavaca for the week and I'm like in tears and weeping because every year goodbyes are always the hardest. Um, but like on my school bus ride home, I'm wondering about, you know, the 30 or 40 families we've helped to get access to a hot shower um, or you know, had a week-long vacation Bible school where we, you know, taught them some rudimentary English. But there's also, like, the, the the realization that it doesn't end with the 30 or 40 kids in that community, but, like, the question of, like, what happens to the other, like, 30 or 40,000 families who don't have access to hot water, uh, who don't have access to a shower? And so 
that sort of is what set me on my trajectory of thinking about public policy as a career, right? Because I, I, I still believe to this day that um, government is probably the only entity that exists in the world that has the size, the capacity, and the resources to scale impact, right? The the fix to people not having hot water is not going to be high school kids going out into the world and like, you know, installing hot water heaters. Um, the fix is going to be through public policy so that everybody has access to a hot shower. Um, and at the same time that this is happening in my life, my dad also becomes really sick. So my parents um, are both Korean immigrants and my dad is a small business owner and has been for most of his life in the States. And so also similarly to other immigrant kids um, and lots of other American families, actually. I think it wasn't unusual for us that we didn't have health insurance growing up. Uh, it, like The idea of insurance entirely was so foreign to me that it wasn't until I was like out of high school that I was like, oh, insurance, this is interesting, right? Um, but I thought health insurance was like, and like literally like you'd go to any other place to render a service, right? You go get your hair cut, you go get your oil changed, you get the service and then you pay for it. Like we would go to the pediatrician's office to get our annual exams, to get our shots, to get our vaccines. And we would just like pay at the counter and then like go home. And that's how I thought it always worked, right? It's no different than any other service on the market. Um, and my dad spends about six months going in and out of doctor's offices, trying to get a diagnosis, trying to figure out what's going on because he is in a ton of pain and missing work He's like passing out, he's peeing blood um, and like no one can figure it out, right? And he's shelled out thousands of dollars for blood work, for medicine that's not working. Um, and finally, out of frustration and like desperation, really, he flies to Korea um, where he lands in Seoul one morning, is at Seoul University Hospital that afternoon. Um, and then the following morning, he's in surgery for bladder cancer. And like the pace at which they were able to get him in <laughs> to see a doctor in a language that he understood felt comfortable with where his pain was not was neither like diminished nor ignored or like sort of written off um, and taken seriously and, and where he felt comfortable being able to talk to someone in his native tongue um, and then how quickly he was able to get into treatment right because so he had surgery there and he went through radiation for the rest of the summer there in 2004 and um, for the next 10 years he would make annual trips to Korea for his annual checkup. And again, you know, like there is clearly something so broken about the American healthcare system. If something is, you know, as, as routine as like annual checkups for your cancer, um, it's easier to like fly 12 hours across the globe to get that care than it is to do it here. And so um, all of these things are sort of swirling in my head as a, you know, impressionable young person. And I decide that I am going to uh, go and be a lawyer and I'm going to go to law school and I'm gonna write good laws because laws matter right that's that's the conclusion I come to um except I go to college um as a poli-sci major and I'm like I'm gonna go to law school and it's Barack Obama's first term and what are the rules on cussing on this podcast <laughs> go for it <laughs> okay great so I was like well how do I describe Mitch McConnell without using expletives um but like that's who I that's that's what's happening right in my time in, in college it's like you're seeing the Affordable Care Act right this like landmark piece of legislation and dickheads like Mitch McConnell who are standing in the way at every single turn 
Um, and like in college, I was like, okay, so like turns out it doesn't matter how well crafted legislation is, where the comma is, like what words you use, because if the person who you've elected to vote for that thing is not actually representative of your values or your community's priorities, like what does it matter, <laughs> right? And like, it sets off this whole crisis or I'm like, what? like you know, the, none of this matters. It doesn't matter what the legislation says. It matters who we elect into office. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to go and help good people get elected into office. Folks who understand like what it means to have, to like be a product of policy, right? Because like, it's not just theoretical, right? Policy is not it shouldn't be theoretical. And for most Americans, I don't think it is, right? But for a very select few, it is. And turns out those are the ones who are like making these decisions about policy. And so um, it was at that point that I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go and work on helping candidates get elected. And so I graduate from college and I go work on campaigns because I think it's like the most important thing I could possibly do as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, 22-year-old. <laughs> And I'm fortunate enough that I get to work on a number of campaigns um, for really great people. Um, my last candidate that I worked for was in 2016 and 2015 in California when we got to help then Attorney General and then Senator Kamala Harris get elected into office. Um, and, and then it starts to sort of dawn on me as I'm doing this work and getting deep into it that communities who want to elect a person um, that represents their values or their priorities um, don't all have the same access to the ballot box, mm -hmm. right? And um, part of that conversation for me starts with an organizing experience I had in California and LA. Um, I was knocking doors at like a senior apartment in Koreatown. And I, you know, the first rule of door knocking is don't ever go into that person's house. Like that is a rule of thumb. Like no one should break that rule. But being young and naive, <laughs> I, I broke that rule because this Korean grandma like she opens her door and she's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I just wanted to see if I could register you to vote. And she's like, well, why don't you come in? I'll cut you some fruit. And so I go <laughs> to her apartment and she cuts me like a plate of like persimmon and tangerines and she's feeding me great fruit. And we're having this conversation and she looks at me and she's like, okay, it's so like, what do you need from me? And I'm like, well, I'm like trying to register voters and I can see you're not registered to vote. Like, are you eligible to vote? And she's like, yeah, I've been a naturalized citizen for like 25 years. I'm like, oh, well, like, why aren't you registered to vote? And she looks at me and she points to the registration form I had in my clipboard and she goes, how would I have ever known to fill this form out? Mm. And I was like, oh. And she's like, when I moved here from Korea, I didn't vote in Korea. It's like, why would I think that I could come to this country and think that I had any right to participate in voting, right? And I was like, wait a second, what? And like, it like blew my mind to think that this person had been here for 25 years, like in our neighborhoods, like, you know, just, but like never, it like never occurred to them that they could vote, right? That, that was a right that they had. And so um, that sort of sets me on a, on a different path to think about like, what does access to the ballot box really look like? Um, and what is equitable access to even like participating in our democracy? even if you're not a citizen, even if you're not registered really look like. And I, I hope that part of that, you know, those conversations that I've had and the learnings that I've had from these experiences will be helpful in, in the way that we have this conversation today, right? Mm -hmm. About practical ways to get involved and like, what can we be doing? So when you decided to run for office yourself, I think a lot of us who have thought about running for office get a little bit overwhelmed by like, 
you know, which office do I run for? Where do I run? How do I take, when do I take this on? How do I take this on? So can you talk a little bit about your, your path of figuring out like what, how you're going to do this, this monumental task of running for office? Totally. The advice I like to give to folks is like, it doesn't matter. Just run. <laughs> Cause like sometimes it is as easy as that, right? Just like pick a thing and go do it. I decided a long time ago that state and local politics was going to be my jam. Um, I think Congress gets a lot of attention and like that's where all the sparklies are and that's where all the money goes. Um, but state and local politics is actually where most of the most um, meaningful policies can shape people's lives. And whether that's the pothole on your street or public education or you know abortion access, Right. All of that, as we just saw from the overturning of Roe v. Wade, right, like there, the Supreme Court is now like it's up to the states. And so like there it is, like even the Supreme Court that I deeply disagree with right now, like agrees that state and local politics matter. Um, and so I decided to run for state legislature because um, and Lila will remember this because, you know, being part of the pandemic book club <laughs> that we were yes. <laughs> we built together in which we made terrible decisions to, to read Octavia Butler's book <laughs> at the wrong time, maybe, right? That sent us into more existential spirals than we'd like to visit at this point. But, um, it, you know, Lila was there like up close and personal with like my decision as I grappled with like, do I want to take on an incumbent and like run in a primary <laughs> to take someone out? And the decision ultimately that I came to obviously was yes. Um, and part of it was because at that point in Virginia, we had just flipped the state legislature so that for the first time in decades, we had a trifecta, a democratic trifecta. And the person that I ran against um, was someone who just like couldn't get out of his own way towards progress. <laughs> um, and, I, and I remember thinking like, there is a way to be progressive and pragmatic so that we're not like shooting ourselves in the foot, right? And, you know, think about, I'm, I'm sure Lila might remember, but like some of the examples that I, I thought about when he, you know, when I decided to make this decision was, it was in the wake of George Floyd and we had a bill on the floor in the house that would have um, removed qualified immunity for police officers, right? And it seems like a really obvious vote to me, um, but the person that I ran against voted against that bill and he said it didn't go far enough and I was like you're kidding me right like this is where we are like this is where the appetite and the majority of like our caucus is and we have the votes for it and you decide to vote against it like I don't understand right and um and so I think that you know if as folks think about what do they want to run for like what 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 kind of experiences are necessary to run for those offices I just think that one thing that women do a lot is discount and undermine the value of their own experiences from just being in the room. Um, because like, you don't have to be a lawyer to be an elected official. You don't have to be a doctor or independently wealthy or, you know, you, you think about all of these things that you have to have, right? I, I think a lot about that statistic where they say, like women try to have all of the qualifications on a job description before applying for it. But men are like, I kind of have that one. I'll just like try anyways, right? It's, it's sort of like, and that that certainly translates to elected office too. Um, I think that we think that there's a list of qualifications a person has to have, but um, I think that the most valuable thing that a, an elected official can bring into the room is 
um, diverse lived experiences that help to impact the kind of policies we're going to be voting on. Um, and so I would say that for folks who are thinking about running for office, like, you know, think about like what you're passionate about, like think about what you're trying to change, think about like what it is that you want to push the ball forward on, and then think about who right now has the most influence over those policy realms or spheres and um, like go for that, right? I think one thing that this makes me think about is um, when we think about like who sort of can volunteer themselves to run in the first place, I think a lot of people don't realize that state offices are often not full-time positions. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you balance having like a day job or like another job and being a delegate and how like your, how you see your colleagues doing that as well. That is such a timely question because I am struggle city right now with that. Um, <laughs> Apologies for making you think about this. No, 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 not at all. It's, um, it's, <laughs> great timing because I have like been lamenting about this everywhere to anybody who will listen. So like now that I get to talk about it on this podcast, great. Like I get to expand my reach of people who listen to me whine about this. Um, Virginia has a part-time legislature. We are in even years meeting for 60 days and in odd years meeting for 40 days. And we get a whopping salary of $17,000 annually because they say- Big money. <laughs> yeah, clearly I'm in it for the money, obviously. <laughs> Um, but, like, but I think that the thing that is a misnomer is like that it's part time, right? Just because we're in session for 45 days or 60 days doesn't mean that my job as a legislator ends when session ends. It actually means that most of my work is happening outside of session, right? right? Like the constituent services, um, the casework, the bill working, like me formulating an idea from like concept to end of introduction to the bill on the floor, like it takes months of work. And so to think that I'm only doing my job as a legislator when I'm in session is just, you know, blatantly false. Um, and right now I'm struggling with being a, for the first time, both the incumbent delegate and the candidate and a full-time employee. <laughs> and so it's, it is right now like a struggle city because I can't um, figure out how to like make all of the hours just like work. Something has to give somewhere. And I'll say that I'll, I've been reflecting a lot on like where the sacrifices I've made have been the past couple of years. And it's really been in my own personal relationships. Like I think about my friends who I haven't talked to or seen, like I haven't gone to brunch in like two years, right? Like what am I doing with my life? Um, and so like, you know, I'm hopeful that in the next, next term, um, I'll be able to sort of figure out how to reshuffle all of that so that I can like prioritize like the human relationships in my life. Um, but for right now, I'll say that before I came into office, I used to think a lot about who has access to running for office because it requires a certain kind of person, a person who has flexibility with their hours, who has probably some sort of institutional relationships where they can like raise money from, right? Um, it requires a certain prototype of a person. And we've come a really long way, I think, in the past six, seven years in changing that paradigm, right? And seeing like more women, more single moms, more moms, um, more immigrants, more people of color who are able to step up and run for office. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's because it's gotten any easier. I think that like people have just like been able to like grin and bear it a little harder, right? Like we're like willing to do the thing. Um, and my colleagues that I serve in the house and, and in the uh, general assembly with, a lot of them are self-employed attorneys, doctors, pharmacists, CPAs, um, who, when I voiced the idea of like a full-time legislator 
or like raising our salaries, they say like, no, that's like, I'm not interested in serving in a legislature that's full time. And I'm like, well, then maybe you shouldn't serve in a legislature. I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, the way that the Virginia legislature was set up was it was this idea that in 1619, it was like the gentleman farmer who was going to ride their horse and buggy to Richmond, which was like equidistant from all corners of the Commonwealth. And in the middle of January, like nobody's got a harvest, like no one's doing anything right now. Like this was supposed to be a hobby for them. But the complexity of the policies that we are crafting and negotiating and working through now and like what they were doing in 1619, come on, y'all, right? Like I was like, what do you mean? Like right now we're like working through how do we get broadband across the Commonwealth to every community, right? And like the complexities of broadband policy turns out are kind of wild, right? Like we were, you know, this past session, we fought with the railroads over who has imminent domain over like railroad crossings and like where broadband wires could go. And we were like, what, right? So again, the complexity of the, of the policies that we're building and like the framework of the regulatory markets are trying to establish like for marijuana, right? It's, it's like intense and 60 days is not enough. And like, there's a real case to be made for a full-time legislature, but unfortunately there's a real pushback to it, even like within my, even within our own party. And so um, my greatest wish, I keep joking to my husband, Peter, I'm like, Peter, I would really like to be a stay-at-home legislator. Can we make that happen? <laughs> so, you know, we'll work towards that. Wait, I love this term. I feel, <laughs> I feel like we need to, this needs a hashtag or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you had a piece in Teen Vogue recently, uh, and you were talking about being the first Korean American woman in the uh, General Assembly. And uh, you had this, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's it's like funny and horrifying at the same time, but this anecdote about the, I think it was the first day you were in the assembly and someone was like, whose office do you work for? You know, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you're balancing these things, right? Of being a legislator, of being a full-time employee, of being a wife, of being a candidate, like all these things, which are also balancing this like weight of expectations and and how people are perceiving you and so I just I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and that piece of it totally um that story about being asked like on my first day in the elevator on my way to my office like whose office do you work for is awful but I'll say that that was just like the tip of the iceberg because after that experience I was like oh I'm gonna keep count of how many people ask me who I work for and so by the end of session the 60 days 17 people had asked me like in some form of like who do you work for <laughs> um, and it really shook me because I was like wait it's it's not as you know simple as like oh she's new like people didn't know who I was like it wasn't as easy as that because I think the underlying assumption and like where that assumption was rooted in or what it was rooted in was more about like who has previously held office and who has previously been in that building and like sort of what people were accustomed to seeing in those halls right which is like older white men and like not me right <laughs> and so um that that was like really jarring to me to be like oh like me being in this space you know when we theoretically talk about like take up space or like representation matters it actually is like so much more than what we give it credit for at surface level because it is about like changing the narrative of like who belongs in these places who belongs in these buildings and like who belongs in this elevator I'll share that there is one of the most um, like even worse 
than the elevator experience was actually being in my very first subcommittee hearing. Um, and so I carried a bill my first session that was about the Invigo Beagles. I'm sure you've heard about them at some point because they've gotten a ton of media. And like the one bipartisan, lovely, heartwarming thing that we did in Virginia last year was we saved like 4,000 beagles. There is this like awful facility in Virginia that breeds beagles for scientific experimentation. And it's just awful. And during the pandemic, like no one was buying beagles or because like no one was no one's like labs were open for experimentation but the facility continued to breed them so by the end of 2021 there was like something like 17,000 beagles in their care right it was like an insane number of beagles and they didn't have the staffing for it like it was just like a bad scenario and so like we worked really hard to close that facility down and like release and free the beagles and so there's like an uh, an uptick in the number of beagles and rescues across the country for like six months last year which is great and lovely honestly the world's cutest dog when you think about it so true um and so we, we th th this is the bill that i you know i carry a bill to try and help with this process and so i'm going into the subcommittee for agriculture and i have printed out these photos of beagles in these like awful kennels and crates and um, I, I have them there because I want them to be passed out to all the members who sit on the subcommittee so they can see these photos. And the way the procedure goes is you go into the meeting or the meeting room and the clerk of the committee is the one who passes out this paperwork to all of the members because no one's allowed to interact directly with the committee members. Everything has to go through the clerk. And so I get there and like, you know, I'm early before it starts and I get to, I go up to the clerk and I say, hi, like, I just wanted to make sure that I had these papers over to you and hoping that you can pass them out to the subcommittee member and then we'll maybe again and for this bill. And she looks at me and she says, oh, honey, let me know when your member gets here and they can give me this paperwork. Oh my God. <laughs> and I like blink and I was like, wait, what? And I look at her and I was like, oh, like I am the member. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it was just like, I was like, wait, even like the staff. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I imagine that that will never happen again because I'm, I'm sure it was mortifying for her too. Um, but like it, you know, it goes, it goes to say that there's this like assumption that like people who are but whether it's like, you know, me specific, right? I'm five feet tall. I look really young. I'm like bubbly and gregarious or like I, I give off like youthful vibes. Um, but I, I think it's just like the fact that like I'm not a crusty old white guy, but um, <laughs> I must work for one. That's I do. I wrote in my book about how I had to like change the way I dressed to go um, lobby on the Hill because I found that if I dressed professionally, like everyone else was, everyone just assumed I was a staffer because I looked so much younger than everyone. So I started wearing like torn up jeans because then they like at least knew I didn't work there. <laughs> that that was like part of the theater of it, which I've always found really fascinating. Um, on a completely different note, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about after you have decided to run for office, after you have sort of like taken some of the initial steps, how do you find campaign staff or even legislative staff where, you know, once once you've sort of like put yourself in a position of having to kind of oversee this um, a campaign operation or, you know, a, an office, a delegate's office of some sort, like, how do you staff it? What is what is the startup look like for someone who's newly been elected or is trying to be elected? Yeah, that's a great question, because it is a challenge. Um, I bet. I'm fortunate enough that I worked in campaign spaces 
so that when I was starting up my campaign, I kind of knew who to go ask for resources from. Um, and so my consulting team for my mail and digital services were immensely helpful in finding us staff and helping to get us shaped up. Um, at the time in 2021, the Blue Leadership Collaborative was functioning in Virginia. And so they had a bunch of staff on the ground. And so I got, most of my staff actually came not from the Blue Leadership Collaborative directly, but from like their periphery. So I, you know, my campaign manager was someone who went through the training, but wasn't actually placed on a competitive campaign. And uh, my field director was a Blue Leadership Collaborative manager's girlfriend. And, you know, there were all of these things that were part, a part of the ether. And, and that's how it happened. But there are so many resources out there, like the arena, um, and there and like your local Democratic Party structure. Um, and certainly if you're running for a state legislature, the, the legislative caucuses also have resources for placing staff. Um, so on the campaign side, that's how that worked out for me in 2021. And then in um, after I won my campaign, you know, what a tough night that was in November 2021, because I was ecstatic that I won. And then I was like all simultaneously like devastated because we lost the governorship, the LG, the AG, and then the house, right? Like, I just like, whew, that was a <laughs> real bad, real bad and great. I don't know. It was like, there were like lots of tears. Some were like tears of joy, but like mostly of like devastation, right? And the joke that I was cracking was like, I thought the AAPI caucus was going to be the only minority caucus I was joining. I didn't realize that the Democratic caucus was also <laughs> a minority caucus. And so... <laughs> That was a that was hard, but one of like the the very very um, few silver linings of that night meant that there were a couple of Democratic delegates who lost their seats, and so I was actually able to pick up one of their staff members um, who has ten years of experience and is incredibly talented, and um, I have had a pretty successful first term um, as long as you're basing it on like the work that I've done and not the bills that I've passed. Um, but like, based on that, like he, I mean, Jameson is the best thing that's happened to my office. And it, it often like, you know, these circles are pretty small. So you're able to come in and find staff who used to work for someone else who wants to go help a new candidate or new member get their office set up because there's a th kind of thrill in like helping to do that too. Um, and so we're, and this year in 2021, um, we've had historic number of retirements, people running for Senate, blah, 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 blah. So right now, my seniority number in the House is 93. And by the time I go into session next January, my number will at the very, very highest be 61 because of the number of people who are leaving, retiring, turning out, running for Senate, doing other things with their life. Um, so lots of change and turnover, but that also means like lots of opportunity to pick up staff. And um, it, it is really hard, actually. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about. Oh, go okay. ahead. I was going to ask if the staff positions are full-time, like what's the um, situation with the staff? In Virginia, this, we do get full-time staff. Um, this, oh, that's great at least. So the, in the House, um, the House of Delegates districts are about 86,000 big. That's like the population number that they try to draw these districts into. And for the Senate, I believe it's something like 200,000 maybe. Um, and so in the House, we get one full-time salaried person um, and only one person can have all of the benefits, like, right, like that come with it, like a retirement, healthcare, et cetera. Um, in the Senate, they get two staff positions, um, but only one of those staff persons are salaried that get benefits. <laughs> so, what? It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really hard to make a compelling case. And I, I think it goes to further talk about, you know, how um, we ask for a lot from like staff. 
right? And those yeah. who are public service, uh, because the salary is not all that great either. Um, I think in the House of Delegates, our entire office budget for salaries is like $66,000 maybe. Um, and so I could split that 10 ways and I could hire 10 people at $6,000 a piece for the whole year, but only one of those people would be eligible for benefits. Um, or you could just like give all of that to one person and then have them have like a semi-livable salary, <laughs> right? Like, um, and it's, it, it it's, um, I think it's really interesting because there is a ton of turnover in democratic delegates offices because we are in like higher cost of living areas and the rate of retention in the Republican members offices is so much higher because the That's cost of living, yeah, because the cost of living where they're representing, like a $65,000 salary with like good benefits where, you know, like it's, you know, it is what it is, like, is actually a really decent and stable job. And, like, that's a good thing for them, right? But for us, like, we're competing with DC, and it, it's, you know, it's different ballgame. So if you're in there in Virginia, and you're wondering why your state delegate isn't getting back to you quickly, <laughs> Could be because y'all need to pay more taxes and get more staff in there. <laughs> so, uh, Irene, I, I think we could talk to you all day, but I, I want to be mindful of the the your time because there's obviously a lot <laughs> that, that you are doing. Um, but we'd like to give people a chance to get involved in your campaign, help out. Can you tell people how they can do that? Yeah, definitely. Um, my website is www.irene4va.com. That's Irene, F-O-R, V as in Victor, A as in Apple.com. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Irene Shin Tweets um, or on Facebook, which is also Irene for Virginia. Um, and there's a, there's a number of ways to get involved. I like to, one of the things that I love about Virginia is that we are always the hottest game in town right on off years um so like you all ain't got nothing else to do this year it's 2023 so if your efforts for volunteering for postcard writing for phone banking for GOTV, right if all of that and donating right is not centered on virginia then like y'all are doing something wrong um because like virginia is always a bellwether state of what's to come in 2024 right 2024 will be a big year and oh god 2024 um <laughs> <laughs> It's whew, man, that's um, not too far away. But you know, today there was an art an article in the Washington Post that talked about some Republican donor retreat where they're talking about like literally rolling back voting rights for students on college campuses, right? And rolling back voting by mail. And so, if you think that democracy is a theory that like you know it's a con conceptually we're trying to protect it, kind of, it's like no, actually, like in Virginia, they are targeting the the state legislature here because like the state legislature can decide our voting access. We took Virginia from being the 49th worst state for voting rights in 2019 to becoming the ninth best voting or state for voting rights in 2021, right? Like in two years, you can make a ton of progress. So those issues that we care about are happening right at the state level. And again, a plug for state and local politics. Like that's where that's where all of this good stuff is happening while Congress is gridlocked and run by the Matt Gateses of the world. Um, great. We will add... Uh all of your links and such to the show notes so people can just click a link and get in touch. Is there anything else that you want to mention before we close out? No, I don't think so. Perfect. <laughs> no, there, there's so much that I want to mention, right? Like, well, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't boil it down to one thing, so I'm going to say no. Right. 
Okay. You can come back. We can talk about this, whatever the second uh, <laughs> half of the show would have been another time. Um, but thanks so much for joining us. This has been really informative and we um, hope that all of you will get uh, involved in state and local level politics, but also will be paying attention to the Virginia races this year because that's always A, exciting and B, hopefully will be exciting in the good way um, and uh, is a way to make a difference at this, uh, this off year, off cycle. So uh, thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wesson and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at whatcanidopod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. 